You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the kidnap and murder of Rosie Tapia. Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. Uh, we've made it another week. We've survived um, another Thursday in the books. <laughs> uh, this past week has been a little wonky over here. Um, my daughter, of course, had a planned three-day weekend, you know, because of Martin Luther King Day. And her school is also having a high influx of COVID cases. So the district decided, long story short, that instead of having a three-day weekend, we were going to have a five-day weekend, which kind of hindered my normal schedule of like when I write. (laughs) But luckily, she is back in school. I think that the cases have gone down a little bit. A lot of people that had it last week are feeling much better and they have returned to school. So yeah, it just, it kind of takes you for a loop when you're planning to do things a certain way and then life throws you a curveball. Um, but yeah, we're, we made it. We're alive. Okay, so if you have been here for, I mean, you don't even have to be here for very long, but um, if you've been here, then you know that I hate covering child cases. But this case has been on my heart for a very long time. Not only is it figuratively close to home because I myself have a daughter who was about the same age as Rosie, um, but it's literally and physically close to my home because this crime occurred 15 to 20 minutes from where I live, 15 to 20 minutes from where I am recording right now. Today's episode has been a long time in the making. I had originally planned on covering this case way back (laughs) in May, June of 2021, which as you know, in COVID years, that's like 11 years ago. Um, However, just before I recorded this very episode, the ladies over at Crime Junkie released their very own episode regarding the Rosie Tapia case. Um, I know that many of my listenership also listened to Crime Junkie, and so I decided to do another case in its stead. However, this case has still been in the very forefront of my brain. I'm not salty about Crime Junkie posting an episode about it last year, even though I was going to post one at the same time. Uh, This case very much needs all of the attention that it can get so that it can be solved. Uh, Like Inevitably, that is the reason why I post these episodes is because I'm hoping to just keep the story alive and get justice for the victim. Um, But I did want to space out the attention Um, hopefully, to just kind of give it another revival and give it um, the attention that deserves a year later. So maybe you listened to that Crime Junkie podcast a year ago and you kind of forgot about it a little bit, and now I'm going to be bringing it back to the forefront of your brain. So that's really what it's all about. Um, If you're new around here, I am a resident of the Salt Lake County area, and I am ashamed to admit that before researching unsolved crimes in my area, when I first began this podcast, I wanted to like cover some cases that were close to home because it just kind of always makes a little bit more, I don't know, just more personal. Um, There 
are several cases in Utah that if you live here, you just know about them. And I'm thinking like off the top of my head, like Susan Powell, Ted Bundy, of course, and he did his little stint in Utah. Um, oh, by the way, a lot of my listeners in Utah have asked me to do an episode on get like kind of giving my take on the Susan Powell case, but I don't think I'm going to do one. Uh, There's just so much information about Susan Powell and people out there who have like created podcast series, like multiple episodes that I feel like I wouldn't really be able to bring anything new to the table, new to that episode. So if you requested that case, I mean, I'm never going to say never. I learned that from my role model, Miss Frizzle back in the day, but I don't know. Just like don't hold your breath about it, I guess. There's just so much information about it. Anyway, I just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping before I dive into today's topic. We always do that, but you know that I don't like chores, so it's going to be quick and painless. So first off, if you are not already following me over on my Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved, I wish you would. Uh, There you can see photos and videos of the cases that we discuss. You can comment your thoughts, theories, opinions on them with our little true crime family over there. We're so friendly. We don't bite, I promise. Um, And about once a week or so, I will even pop into stories and chat a bit with you or I'll put up a poll or a giveaway. Um, I have some big plans for this year and growing the podcast. A lot of things currently in the works like I don't know. Do I want to share uh, a new logo? I've been in contact with somebody that we're hopefully going to get a new logo soon. Um, dare I say that I may or may not, can neither confirm nor deny, uh, looking into doing a Patreon and merch. Ah! Yeah, you heard it right. So you're definitely going to want to follow me on Instagram so that you are the first to know about all of these new and exciting things are going to be happening in 2022. Oh man, it's going to be a big year, a big year for Mysteries Still Unsolved. And I'm so excited that you guys are all here for the journey. Um, If you can't get enough of Mysteries Still Unsolved on Instagram, you can always meander over to my website, www.mysteriesstillunsolved.com and binge my 66 episodes. Wow, that's a lot of episodes. Yeah, I know. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, sometimes I have to be my own co-podcaster because I don't have one. So yeah. All right. Like I said, you've got to get your chores done before you can have some fun. So now that we have done the housekeeping and we've gotten that out of the way, let's dive into today's case. We'd like to believe that the safest place for any child would be asleep in their beds, perhaps dreaming of sugar plums dancing in their heads. That was a reference to Christmas. Okay, maybe it fell flat. I don't know. (laughs) Unfortunately, that is not the case in today's episode. On the evening of August 12, 1995, Lewine Tapia and her husband were getting ready to go on a date. And trust me, these two definitely deserved some time to themselves, sans kids. Uh, Lewine had two older children from a previous relationship. And in her new marriage, she had a six-year-old daughter named Rosie and two, count them, two four-year-old twins. That's a lot. 
the family lived all together in a three-bedroom ground floor apartment in a low-income housing apartment complex formerly known as the Heartland Apartments. Before LaWine and her husband left for an incredible evening of salsa dancing, yeah, that sounds so fun. <laughs> uh, they were going to go do that with friends. LaWine peeked on the children who were actually already asleep in their beds in the same room. LaWine and her husband left around 9.30 p.m. The three younger children were in the care of LaWine's 18-year-old daughter, Amelia Elizondo. Around 2 to 2.30 a.m., LaWine and her husband returned home to a peaceful and quiet home. Amelia, her oldest, had already gone to bed for the night. LaWine knew that her three youngest were probably fine, but just in case, she went inside their room to check on them. This is a stealthy warrior ninja time. Because LaWine had to creep in there as quietly as she could possibly do in order to check on them without waking any of them up. Because if you're a parent or just know a child, you know that if you wake a kid up in the middle of the night, they're going to think that it's fair game to just, I don't know, be up now. Like, oh, we're up. Okay, we're up now. That's what we're doing. Okay, cool. Um, LaWine noticed when she was checking in on her littles that the window was open. And this wasn't unusual. I mean, hello, Utah is a desert and August is like one of our hottest months of the year. The Heartland apartment complex, being low-income housing, didn't have the best air conditioning system. And so the family would often crack a window at night to just get a cool breeze circulating throughout the room to make it much more bearable to sleep. Now, LaWine didn't like how open the window was, so she did go over and close it almost all the way, and then she kissed her babies goodnight and went to sleep herself in the room across the hall. At around 5.30 a.m., LaWine was awoken by a strange sound. She laid in the dark, hazy, and not fully awake for a few moments before looking out her bedroom door at her little one's bedroom door just across the hall and her heart stopped the door to her baby's room was completely shut and even in lewine's tired stupor she definitely remembered that she had left the door slightly open just a crack she did this every night in order to hear the children if they woke up crying from a nightmare or something or like rosie had to go to the bathroom she just kind of wanted to be aware um, LaWine figured it was probably nothing, probably nothing, but she wanted to go in and just make sure everything was okay. And I feel her because I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and I'm like, why am I up? Is this a premonition? Does this mean something? Like, should I go check on my kids? If this is, if I don't check on my kids, is this like the one time that I should check on my kids? And then I'm going to like regret it in the morning. So I get it. LaWine and I are the same. So LaWine groggily stumbles to the door, thinking to herself, I'm just being silly. This is silly. But as she opened the door, those thoughts immediately dissipated and were replaced with feelings of dread and fear. The window that she knew she had barely closed just three hours earlier was now completely open. The screen had been removed and the drapes and the blinds disheveled and tossed to one side. She raced to the twins' bed. They were asleep, cozy, 
perfect. She raced to Rosie's bed, but all that remained was Rosie's favorite stuffy and tangled in a twisted comforter. Rosie was gone. Lewine screamed for her husband. Everyone in the family woke up and scoured the apartment and just outside of it in hopes that they would find Rosie. But around 6 o'clock, just 30 minutes later, the decision was made to officially notify the police. Now, let me tell you something about the Tapias and the Elizondos. They do not mess around because by the time police arrived, Lewine and her husband had printed out flyers with Rosie's picture on them to help aid in the search of their beloved daughter. The police weren't denying that it might be a kidnapping, but they needed to see the scene and process it for themselves. After looking into Rosie and the twins' bedroom, something was in fact discovered. All right, so like I mentioned before, the apartment was ground floor, and it appeared that the screen had been pried open from the outside of the apartment. They also entered the apartment through the window in the same way that the potential kidnapper might have. And it was at this point in time that they noticed something. Right beneath the ground floor window was the child's, the children's dresser. And on top of that dresser was a white towel, folded and ready to use the next time Lewine bathed her kids. On top of that white towel was a perfect man-sized footprint. The towel was taken in for processing, but these two pieces of evidence aligned the parents of Rosie Tapia and the Salt Lake City Police Department. Everyone was now on the same page that Rosie had, in fact, been kidnapped. A plan was made for a search within a three-mile radius of the apartment. Police brought in extra police units and were summoning the help of the scent pups. I love those freaking scent pups. When they received a devastating call. About a mile away from the apartment complex, a man had been jogging along a Jordan River path, as he did every morning. During this jog, he had noticed something floating in the river. At first, he thought it was a giant doll or perhaps a child's child-sized mannequin, but as we know, it's never a mannequin. Um, and as this jogger got closer, he made the horrific discovery that it was in fact a child. He pulled the child out of the water, hoping that he would be able to resuscitate her, but it was no use. He ran back to his apartment to call 911 because, hello, it's 1995 and not everyone has a cell phone. The police received the call and rushed to the scene. It was there that it was confirmed the lifeless body that had been pulled from the river did in fact belong to Rosie Tapia. However, this is when the Tapia family and the Salt Lake City Police Department kind of diverge in their beliefs because the Tapia family believed that this was proof that their daughter had been kidnapped and drowned in this river. However, the Salt Lake City Police Department believed that because the location of her drowning was in conceivable walking distance to the apartments, that it was possible that Rosie got out of the house on her own and had accidentally drowned in the river because she was fully clothed. Lewine insists that this just cannot be. She knew her daughter and continued to claim that her daughter would have been much too frightened to walk a mile in the dark on her own volition. Rosie Tapia's body is sent to the medical examiner. About two to three days later, the police receive the report, and once again, the police department changes their mind. They now know for a fact that Rosie Tapia was kidnapped, was sexually assaulted, 
was beaten and murdered. The medical examiner's report claims that Rosie Tapia was severely beaten shortly before her death, suffering multiple blows to the back of the head. However, her cause of death was drowning. She had been placed into the water while she was still barely alive. Who would have committed this incredibly heinous and sadistic crime against a child? The police first spoke to the two twins who had been sleeping in the room with Rosie at the time of the abduction. One of the twins couldn't provide the police with any information. However, the other twin could. This twin claimed that he had woken up and had seen a bearded man hovering over their bed. The bearded man had placed one finger atop of his mouth in like a shushing manner and had whispered, go back to sleep. The little boy was probably dazed and half asleep, so he did go back to sleep. I mean, put yourself in the body of a four-year-old. There's an adult in your room. You're kind of tired, and he's telling you to go to sleep, which isn't all that unusual because I have to go into my kid's room several times a night and tell them, shh, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. So, I mean, that's their life. They're always being told, go to sleep. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't too, it it didn't alarm him enough to wake him up. Uh, The twin, however, was too young to ask to give a reliable composite sketch. Even if they had gotten a composite sketch from this four-year-old, it would have never held up in a court of law. Um, The police didn't know what else to do at this point. But then Amelia, Lewine's 18-year-old daughter, remembered something off about the day before. Amelia claimed that during the day when her mom and stepdad were at work, she had been watching the twins and Rosie. The twins were down for a nap, and Rosie had wanted to go to the playground, which is in the courtyard of the apartment complex. Amelia, at the time, thought, this is a great idea. Rosie can go play and be loud, and she won't, you know, possibly wake up the twins. And Amelia would be able to check in on her now and then through the window of their apartment that was facing the playground. Amelia said that when she dropped Rosie off at the playground, there were several kids playing and a parent or two off to the side. She told Rosie to be good and to come back to the apartment if she needed anything at all. Minutes after returning home, Amelia heard a knock at the door. She answered the door and there was Rosie. But Rosie wasn't alone. She was actually being carried by a man that Amelia had never seen before. The man gently placed Rosie on the ground and said that he had been at the playground and Rosie had fallen off the slide and gotten hurt, and he wanted to return her. Amelia took her sister's hand and pulled her inside the apartment and gave a quick, you know, thanks a lot to the guy. And as the man turned to leave, he waved and said, goodbye, Rosie. Amelia shut the door and locked it. There was just something about the man that had given her the heebie-jeebies. Her spidey, her spidey senses were tingling. Um, and then to confirm this bad feeling that she already had about this dude, Rosie confessed something to Amelia. Rosie said that the man had been lying. She hadn't fallen off the slide and she hadn't gotten hurt. She also told her sister that she'd never told the man her name and that she didn't even need to tell him how to get to their apartment because he had already known. Shivers went down Amelia's spine as she told police that she believed that the same man, creepy playground dude, had, that had brought Rosie home the day before must be the man who kidnapped and did all of those terrible things to her little sister. So, police had a lead. 
creepy man at the playground. They asked around the complex and this name kept coming up. Residents told police that there was a man who was often seen sitting on the playground watching children. The residents were pretty sure he didn't have a kid, so that made it all the weirder. Also, he always wore a baseball cap and big sunglasses, which is like the official uniform of somebody who is up to no good. Um, Some of the witnesses claim that they often saw him sitting on the swings, playing guitar, singing, and interacting with the children. So, Amelia was not the only one in this apartment complex who kind of had the heebie-jeebies and their spider senses were tingling about this creepy playground guy. The police tracked down this dude, and it turns out that he actually did, in fact, have a child, a son that he shared custody with every other weekend. And it just so happens that the weekend that Rosie was kidnapped, he and his son were up camping in the mountains, so he had a pretty solid alibi for the time of her disappearance. Police were incredibly frustrated that they had nothing until they knocked on the door of a woman residing at this very same complex, and this woman told them a story that they couldn't believe. You see, this woman's seven-year-old daughter had been kidnapped and sexually assaulted and then returned just one week earlier. The police were astonished. They asked the woman if she had filed a police report, and the woman said that she hadn't. And they asked her, well, why not? And the woman replied that she had gone to the property owner's office, and the property manager had told her not to say anything about it because it would cause negative publicity for the complex. It also didn't help that the woman was an immigrant from Mexico and she hadn't entered the U.S. in the right way. Um, She didn't have her papers, I guess I'll put it. So she didn't want to contact the police for fear that she could risk her and her family being deported. This infuriated the police. Um, Me too. It infuriates me as well. Um, Who immediately went to the property manager and demanded to know more about the situation. The property manager admitted that it was all true. And not only that... But he also informed the police that three to four months earlier, there had been an attempted kidnapping of yet another six-year-old resident. This established an accelerating pattern to the police. Three to four months ago, the sicko was attempting a kidnapping. Then it escalated to a kidnapping and the actual rape of a child. And here they were the following week investigating the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a child. Police had several leads that never panned out. For example, during the medical examiner's findings, they were able to find skin cells under Rosie's fingernails, which is super sad because it indicates that Rosie had fought her attacker before her death the best way a little six-year-old could. Um, However, because her body had been submerged in water, they were unable to collect enough epithelial cells to meet the requirements to test their sample against samples that were already stored in CODIS. A week after Rosie was buried, someone, it's unsure who, left a Barbie doll atop of her grave. Of course, this could be a family member or just a citizen in the community who felt impacted by the case. I mean, there are so many times when there's a car accident and a child dies or the child that's murdered and people will go deliver like stuffed bunnies and flowers. So it could have just been something like that. But it also could have been the murderer visiting his victim or feeling some sort of remorse for what they had done. And you would think, 
you would think that the Salt Lake City Police Department would collect this doll and process it into evidence. However, for reasons unknown, they did not. They didn't feel it was worth it. So instead, the Tapia family, because they are badasses, they decided to take it and they put it in a Ziploc bag. And they've been hanging on to it, hoping that one day it might provide a clue that will help them bring the killer to justice. So they have the Barbie doll at their house. Nine years, this case went cold. And all throughout those nine years, LeWine would call the police department at least once every other week to get updated on what they were doing to find her daughter's killer. The police really didn't have anything to go off of. I mean, yes, there had been a few leads here and there, even leading them to a possible suspect in North Carolina who had ties to Las Vegas and Reno. But if you don't know the West very well, like, states are not very close to each other, okay? When I drive down to Vegas, it takes me at least six and a half to seven hours. So that's not really probable. Um, This lead with this man in North Carolina didn't really pan out, but the police did still attempt to get information with what they did have. They sent the case files over to a prestigious professor um, named Professor Kramer, who taught criminal behavior analysis at the University of Utah. Go Utes! Um, Professor Kramer created a behavioral profile of the unidentified subject, and here is just a sample of what that profile says. So, Professor Kramer states, this person is, quote, a very impulsive person, one who does the first thing that pops into his head without ever thinking about the consequences. This person wouldn't be able to initiate a conversation. This is a very withdrawn, loner type of person, end quote. Rumors began to swarm the community, as they always do, and some people believe that Amelia might have thrown a party the night her sister went missing and that one of her guests had kidnapped and murdered her sister. Um, Amelia has always denied these accusations. There are others who believe that it could have been an inside job, that possibly it was a family member of Rosie's or even her own parents, and Lewine says that this is the rumor that stings the most. In 2004, the Salt Lake City Police Department announced that they were finally announcing a person of interest. Since the investigation is ongoing, they don't want to make the name public record, um, but they did let let us in a little bit. They let us know that police in Midvale had actually contacted them um, to tell them about a guy that they had arrested in 2003. So the guy that they had arrested in 2003 was arrested for inappropriate sexual contact with a minor, and they had a reason to believe through interviews, I'm guessing, that he might be responsible for Rosie's death. They also have physical evidence that may lead him to the crime. Six years after that, so I don't even know what the heck happened with that lead, but Six years after that, in 2010, police returned to an old figure, a ghost of Rosie Tapia past. Um, One of the first persons of interest, the person Amelia told them about all those years ago, creepy playground dude. But they hit a bit of a snag. Because there seems to be some sort of confusion as to whether or not the initial conversation that they had with him, you know, when he claims that, yes, I do have a son. Yes, I am a creepy guy that sits at the playground. But no, I couldn't have possibly killed Rosie because I was out camping with my son that weekend. Police are now not even sure that that conversation 
ever took place because there isn't a record of it anywhere. Furthermore, turns out there might not be just one but two creepy playground dudes. According to the Salt Lake City Tribune, the lead investigator the lead investigator, sorry, I'm getting riled up, so I'm like stumbling over my words now. The lead investigator of the case in 1995 claims that yes, they did talk to the creepy playground dude, and no, he's not involved. But now, only five years later, police are saying it never happened. We don't know his name, we don't know anything about him, and that there's no record of an interview. There's no record that it even took place. So now it's believed that the weird guitar guy who was like kumbayaing with the kiddos on the playground, that might not even be the same guy who brought Rosie home and made up that elaborate story of her falling off the slide. So who the F did they talk to? Did they talk to creepy playground guy? Or did they talk to creepy guitar guy? Are they the same person? Did they talk to neither one of these people? Like, Ugh! Shouldn't there be evidence of this interview? Was someone like not keeping their files straight and organized? They needed a Virgo. That's what they needed. They needed a Virgo police officer. That is the requirement that I am, if I ever became in charge of hiring police department, like police people, police officers, <laughs> I'm like so angry right now. Um, I would require that they all have to be Virgos because as we all know, Virgos are the superior sign because we are very organized. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Anyways, I am so angry. Anyway, in 2010, the Salt Lake City Police Department finally gets around to getting a composite sketch from Amelia. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. So we can all really just take that in and feel the rage. In 2010, that's 15 years after Rosie is kidnapped and murdered, police think that it might be a good idea to, I don't know, get a sketch. And I don't know about you, but I can barely remember the face of an ex-boyfriend and you expect Amelia to accurately depict the facial features of a white dude she saw for a few seconds 15 years ago? That's insanity. I was talking to Brian about this and I asked him, if you saw the Amazon delivery man yesterday, do you think you could accurately provide a composite sketch to the police today? And he agreed with me, absolutely freaking not. (laughs) So this composite composite sketch is made up and it's completely laughable. It's almost comical. You have to like laugh to keep from crying like how bad it is. And this is no fault of Amelia's. I'm sure that she would have given a stellar rock star composite sketch if the police had been doing their job and had gotten it from her the day it happened. Anyways, I'm going to post a picture of it on Instagram at mystery soul and solve. But for now, in your mind, if you're one of those people, oh my gosh, Brian was telling me that there's like these people that they can't picture things in their mind. It, like they make up like two to three percent of the population. And if you tell them to like picture a yellow house in their head, like they can't do it. So I'm so sorry if you are one of those people. Um, You can't do this right now. But if you're the other 97 to 98 percent of us, just picture the invisible man with a giant pair of sunglasses and a black baseball cap. And that's what the sketch looks like. There is no way in hell anyone is getting charged because he looks like every other average, mundane, mediocre white dude with a baseball hat and sunglasses. Like, just go to a Yankees game and there's like 
20,000 suspects you can choose from, okay? So no surprise, no leads come from this sketch. A few years later, police announce in the media that they are going to finally get around to testing that Barbie doll. Lucky for them, the Tapias have been taking really good care of it. Um, They say that they have very specific reasons for believing that it might hold the key to who killed Rosie, but I don't know what those reasons are because they're not going to share it with the class because, again, it's an ongoing investigation. This is frustrating. However, a week after this announcement is made, the case takes another bizarre turn. According to ABC4 News, an anonymous guy comes forward to share what he saw the very morning Rosie was killed all those years ago. He claims that around 5.15, maybe 5.30, he was taking his dog for a walk along the Jordan River when ahead of him, about 150 yards or so, he saw a white pickup truck speed away. He kept walking in the direction of where the truck had been because that was where he normally took his dog for a walk when he began to see a figure in the distance walking towards him. As it got closer, he was able to see that it was a young Hispanic kid, possibly somewhere between the ages of 19 and 23. Um, The man walking his dog noted that the boy had these strange two-toned jeans on, and he thought in his head, like, look at this freaking dummy youth wearing these stupid two-toned jeans. It must be a fad. It needs to be over forever. Um, But anyways, the jeans were lighter on the top and darker on the bottom, kind of like an ombre effect. So just kind of picture that in your head. However, as the teen got even closer, the man could see that the jeans were not dyed or two-toned at all. This was not a fashion statement, but that in fact, the boy's jeans were wet at the bottom, almost as if he had been standing knee deep in a river. Turns out where the man had been walking his dog that very morning was literally steps away. He did not know because it was still dark at that time. He was literally steps away from where Rosie Tapia's body was later found by the other person who called. When ABC4 questioned the witness about why he hadn't come forward before, the man surprised everyone. Everyone's jaws dropped when he said he had He said later that day, when the news was covering this horribly tragic story about the death of Rosie Tapia, and he had figured out that he had been in that area about the same time that morning and seen that white truck speed off and that boy with the wet jeans walking towards him, he called the police, but the police never came to talk to him. And let's not forget that the man claims he saw a truck speed away and then the Hispanic kid. This would allude to the fact that maybe this was not a one-person operation, but that there could be possibly two, if not more, people involved or people who know about who killed Rosie Tapia. Because the Salt Lake City Police Department seriously dropped the ball in interviewing this witness and getting a composite sketch from him then, ABC4 News refuses to allow this lead to go unfollowed. So they take it upon themselves. Clap. Let's cheer for ABC4 News. Thank you. Thank you. And they took it upon themselves to hire a former police officer who was then a professional sketch artist. And... There is now a sketch of that man, and I'm going to post it on my Instagram as well. 
definitely a lot more features. He doesn't just look like a Play-Doh blob face um, to go off of from this sketch compared to the other one. Um, thank goodness. Hallelujah. Police took the sketch and decided to formally release it to the public. In January 2020, so just two years ago, police made the announcement that they finally have the name of Creepy Playground Dude. A little later, Danny Woodland came forward with some disturbing information. In 1995, when police were investigating anyone and everyone involved, associated in Rosie's life, this particular individual called, who did he call? I can't remember. He called ABC News or KUTV. He called somebody and he was very upset because the police never came to question him. He says that at the time that Rosie went missing and was found, he was actually dating Rosie's 18-year-old half-sister, Amelia. And he wishes that police would have come to talk to him as they claimed they would because he has information that might have helped them all those years ago. He claims that he used to use Rosie's window all the time to sneak into their apartment back when Amelia used to be in that room. So apparently Amelia had had the larger room and Rosie had had the smaller room. But then when Lewine and her husband had the twins, they decided to switch rooms. So Amelia now had the smaller room and Rosie and the two little ones could have the bigger room and fit more beds in there. Um, he hadn't thought anything of it about, you know, bringing up the fact that they had used that room to sneak into the apartment until he saw the second sketch. He said that many of his friends knew about that way into the home and that he had sometimes brought friends over in the middle of the night to hang out with Amelia and that he had a friend who had come with him to see Amelia who looked eerily similar to the composite sketch of the Hispanic teen down by the river. So police get a picture of Danny's friend from back in the day, back from 1995 when he was 18 and show it in a photo lineup to the guy who helped out with the second composite sketch and wouldn't you know the witness selects Danny's friend from the lineup Salt Lake City the Salt Lake City Police Department and Tapia's um private investigator are now currently working together finally to this day no one has been arrested and no suspects have been publicly named. The Tapias have not only gone through a terrible experience losing their daughter to the hands of a careless killer, but they've also gone through a horrible experience with the Salt Lake City Police Department, who seem to have done a very careless investigation back in the 90s into their daughter's death. Not only have leads gone to the wayside without being properly and thoroughly investigated, but when they have had leads or made announcements publicly, Publicly, the Tapias have found out about these leads the same way everyone else has by watching the news. And this is so infuriating to me because Lewine has made an effort. She has been putting in the work. She has called the police department every few weeks for the past 27 years to get updates on the case and the Salt Lake City Police Department can't pick up a damn phone and set up an in-person meeting to tell them the information before they make it public on the news. Like that is just terrible. Like you should be like, hey, 
We found some information. We're going to go public with it. We're going to have a press conference, but we wanted you to hear it from us, answer any questions that you might have, process it before we just throw it out. Oh, it's just so annoying. I feel like the family deserved that time to process before just being attacked and bombarded with news outlets, hounding them for a statement when they are receiving the information the same way and at the same time that we all are. I hope that one day soon, Rosie Tapia's killer receives justice. I hope that the Salt Lake City Police Department is working a little bit harder, getting some training on their bedside manner. It doesn't seem like it's very good. Um, they don't have the best etiquette when it comes to victims and their families in at this moment. Um, maybe they're getting better. I don't know. Um, many people in the Salt Lake City community are upset with the way Rosie Tapia's case was handled by the police. And same girl, same. Um, not only that, but how her case was covered, or rather not covered, by the news. Um, you see, seven years after Rosie Tapia was kidnapped and brutally murdered, Elizabeth Smart, who also resided in the Salt Lake City area, was kidnapped from her home in the middle of the night. And while you may not have known the name Rosie Tapia before this episode, I can like bet with like 80% confidence that you've certainly heard of Elizabeth Smart. Many locals in the area believe, and rightfully so, that this is all because Rosie was of Hispanic descent and from a less affluent part of the city. Basically, she was on the wrong side of I-15. And that is the reason her case was never picked up and put on the cover of New York Times. And shows like Dateline and Unsolved Mysteries and 60 Minutes have never reached out to the Tapia family to cover Rosie's story. This is why it's so important for mediums like this to talk about Rosie Tapia and other victims like her. We are helping to propel her case into the limelight so that it will finally, finally receive the attention that it deserves. The only way it will be solved is if we keep talking about her. Amelia, Rosie's half-sister, the one who was watching her that night, died of natural causes recently. She died without ever seeing justice be served for Rosie's killer. Lewine continues to hope that someday soon they will get the answer to their prayers. What do you think? What do you make of this case? Do you think it was creepy playground dude? Creepy guitar dude? Amelia's ex-boyfriend? Amelia's ex-boyfriend's friend? The rapist who was already in Utah State Prison for committing another similar crime years later? Rosie Tapia was a little cutie. I'm going to post her picture up. She is so stinking cute. She kind of looks like one of my little cousins. Um, She was a vibrant, spunky first grader. I love first graders. That's like my favorite age. Um, Rosie's favorite color was purple and she loved to dance and she loved to snuggle and she loved drawing and playing with her friends and she loved all animals and all animals loved her. And that's how you know she was a kick-ass human being because Animals have a second sense for these things, guys. Like, if you, if animals like you, you're a good person. If animals don't like you, I don't trust you. I don't don't care. It doesn't even matter if you've never done anything. And I can't prove it, but I don't trust you. Um, But anyways, who knows all the wonderful things that Rosie Tapia would have accomplished in her lifetime had her life not been cut short by the hands of a sick, twisted, and malicious monster or monsters. If you have any information regarding this case, please reach out to the Salt Lake City Police Department at their tip line, either via email, whokilledrosie at gmail.com, 
or call 385-258-3313. It is the hope of the Salt Lake City Police Department that perhaps someone who might have been hesitant to come forward before, either because they were undocumented citizens or perhaps feared retribution from the person that they know who did it, um, that they will now feel safe enough to come forward. Let me know your thoughts, theories, and opinions on this case on the post that I made on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Thank you so much for joining Mystery Still Unsolved this week. I appreciate you so much for choosing to be here out of all the places in the podcast universe. Do you want to know how you can support this podcast? Of course you do. Follow me on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Visit my website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Tell a fellow true crime-loving friend, family member, coworker, friend at school, lab partner, person at the grocery store, person that's valeting your car, anybody. Just tell everybody about me and the podcast. But the best way to support this podcast, as always, would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?